Welcome to the Heart Failure Insights podcast. In this podcast, we hope to explore the latest treatment and management options for heart failure patients. Whether you're a healthcare professional, patient, carer, or family member looking to learn more, Dr. Julianne Locke, our host, will be interviewing some of the leading cardiology experts across the globe to help us uncomplicate the subject. Arwin Cardiology presents the Heart Failure Insights Podcast. This episode is not intended for US and UK-based healthcare professionals. Welcome to this Heart Failure Insights Podcast. My name is Dr. Julianne Locke, and in this series, we will explore the latest treatment and management options for heart failure patients with preserved or reduced ejection fraction. From discussing the epidemiology of the disease to the management of patients with particular comorbidities, this podcast will arm you with the information you need to improve your clinical decision-making and provide your patients with more treatment options. For this episode, I'm joined by Professor Stefan Anker. Professor Anker is based in the Department of Cardiology at the Charité Campus Verkau Clinic in Berlin, Germany. He is the principal investigator for the Emperor of Preserved study, which is investigating the outcomes in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Today, we will gain an insight into heart failure and briefly discuss some of the promising treatment options available to patients. Professor Anker, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure and looking forward to the discussion. Great. I suppose a good place to start then is what is heart failure? Mm. It seems to be more a collection of conditions and can present very differently in different patients. So provide us with a good overview. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, well, heart failure, let's start with a very simple statement. It's a big problem. Uh, and heart failure is very frequent. And heart failure is something that I would say at least one out of five of all the listeners, uh, all the relative of all the listeners, and everybody really in life will experience at some stage in one shape or form. And heart failure is not just one single uh, defined issue, it's really a syndrome all leading uh, from, from different pathways to the same problem that patients basically uh, get symptomatic with shortness of breath, uh, limited exercise capacity, poor quality of life. So that's the personal perspective of the patient on this. And the patient really feel miserable and, and really cannot do anything. Then the patients very often need to go to the hospital. And that, of course, in itself is not good for the quality of life. Nobody likes living in the hospital. But it's also uh, a burden to the society. And these things cost, cost money. Uh, and then, of course, uh, it is a disease where multiple drugs are used. And unfortunately, where also the prognosis is impaired so that you prematurely die. Uh, and all of this together uh, constitutes a big problem for the patient, for the society, for the relatives, for the caregivers, for everybody involved. Uh, and it's good if we can find solutions to make this a lesser problem, but everything starts by recognizing the problem in the first place. And I suppose that brings me on to a bit of a follow-up there. So why is it a big problem? Like what are the particular risks? Why are we seeing an increased number mm. in patients with heart failure? And I suppose, how can these, you know, frontline physicians, family physicians, general practitioners, how can they spot heart failure earlier or at least maybe prevent it from developing with their patients? Yeah, well, this is about three or four questions in one. But, but, but let's start with the very simple thing. Why is it becoming so 
frequent now, uh, in, in apparently even increasing in frequency. Uh, and why is it that, that, first of all, many patients develop heart failure in the first place? Well, um, there is several answers to this. One is there is risk factors for the developing of heart failure that are really very frequent in our society. I want to start with very simple things like coronary artery disease, hypertension, uh, but also obesity and diabetes. So you can already see a spectrum of problems uh, that, that are very diverse in origin, leading all to the same final result called heart failure. And uh, these, these, these pathways, there are multiple of them. You could have valvular disease as well. You could have uh, atrial fibrillation and arrhythmia problems. All of this can in the end lead to heart failure. So you might say, if you de develop a, a scheme where you survive the early problem, the end result will always be heart failure in many, many cases at least. And if you survive heart failure long enough, and let's, let's not forget this, heart failure is not the only thing in the world, then you develop actually cancer. So these are problems of longer term survival than, than really, shall we say from a very fundamentalist statement, than originally planned by nature. This is, this is part of our aging process. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, you might say not avoidable because the, the different organs we have in the body, they are about to malfunction at some stage. And when they malfunction, it becomes really obvious for the patient when the heart is malfunctioning and then you develop heart failure. So this is the first aspect. Why is this so frequent and seemingly, and this is the second aspect now, now even increasing in, in frequency. Well, there is a second aspect here, which is a little bit the widening of our diagnostic approach to heart failure. Yes. So, so if you take the simple ejection fraction approach and, and look into the history of having done clinical trials, the early trials were all done with an ejection fraction below 25, 30 or 35% of left ventricular ejection fraction. Today's trials with a heart failure and a reduced ejection fraction go up to 40. So that already is a widening. Now there's a second part that, that is widening. That's the recognition that there is also heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction. And, uh, and of course, if you, let's say, Generally speaking, you, you, you say you need to have some cardiac abnormalities, keep it simple with the ejection fraction. There is no real upper limit for HEFPEF to be diagnosed, but let's call it 60, 65 uh, as an upper limit. So that, that brings an additional group. And this additional group is relevant now because we now can do something about the group. And if we are talking five years from now, well, this could, would even go further by having maybe heart failure with a recovered ejection fraction, uh, having basically then other chronic illnesses induced cardiotoxic kind of resulting mm -hmm. kind of um, uh, heart failure, some call it with an impaired ejection fraction, where you simply not look at the absolute value, but the short-term change in ejection fraction. And if it's more than 10% down, uh, you call this a problem. And so it shows you that our widening of our diagnostic net, if you like, has led to this increasing frequency from an epidemiological standpoint. And I suppose it's, you know, you mentioned there, as we live longer, we're going to see more heart failure. It's, it's an inevitable part of aging. So what can people do to maybe 
I suppose, delay onset of heart mm -hmm. failure or, you know, reduce their risk of heart failure developing too early? Yes. I mean, prevention is, of course, uh, for, for many people, the, the ultimate goal here when they are young and, and still healthy. Uh, of course, prevention is, is really uh, at least primary prevention when you're an old and are already diseased. That is, yeah, or, or damage done. Now you need to kind of sort out the problem. And if you like, repair the machine uh, or, or make the machine go longer. But the prevention is the, 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 the holy grail, if you like, for all of this uh, early on. Well, uh, I don't want to belabor the things that are obvious too much, but healthy lifestyle, uh, physical activity, uh, looking out for your, your cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, if you basically manage your lipids uh, and, and um, maybe have a, have a nutrition, maybe have uh, uh, an overall lifestyle that, that promotes the idea of, of being uh, not prone to develop coronary artery disease and diabetes, uh, that of course would help. Um, exercise in general is, is probably good. And then every other form of early intervention, even if you only have slight problems with blood pressure, but no symptoms with it, but, but let's say just a numerical problem, take it serious. A blood pressure of 150, 160 is not a good thing long term. Mm -hmm. uh, and you may live quite well with it 10 or 20 or 30 years. But then once you're 60 or 70, you still get heart failure from it. Uh, and if you want to prevent that, which will be maybe your major problem health-wise in life. I'm sorry to say you need to do something about your 150, 160 blood pressure. Uh, and that is then um, a form of a primary prevention for heart failure, secondary prevention in hypertension for the future development of heart failure. Yeah, take, take these, these early small problems, seemingly small problems, take them serious and do something about them. So I think it's quite interesting what you've said there about, you know, heart failure isn't just one thing. It's, it's first of all, it's a combination of syndromes, but also people may have, you know, type 2 diabetes, there may be obesity problems, there may be kidney issues there. What are the challenges facing clinicians when it comes to diagnosing mm. heart failure? Well, yeah, one, one or two challenges come from the way that the patients present. Uh, I'll come back to this in a second. But a second challenge is, of course, a problem of our lifestyle and time. More and more people are seen by less and less uh, physicians. Uh, lack of time, bureaucracies, where, where time is basically short because you have to document also what you're doing. So, so more and more we are uh, exposed to a situation where you have to make very fast, accurate decisions. And of course, when, it, when a syndrome that, that you're facing in a patient is rather complex, and now I'm coming to the first part that there may be more than one problem in this patient, then really things are getting difficult. Now, uh, as much as um, cardiovascular disease and heart failure are a field of my interest, my work, and, and are very frequent in the society, there's also something called asthma and COPD. And now asthmatic and, and COPD patients, they also present with shortness of breath. So what is this shortness of breath? Is this COPD? Is this heart failure? not an easy decision to make. Mm. And of course, discovering congestion, discovering specific cardiac problems that then lead you to a diagnosis of uh, heart failure versus discovering whether or not your breathing function works. This is already not something that you can just quickly do uh, on, on the fly. Uh, you need to do some more investigations. And the same is that, of course, 
with kidney function. All the heart failure patients have a have a poor kidney function, but is it really the heart that is causing this? If you just do a spot GFR assessment, or is it actually a specific kidney disease uh, that led to all of this? Um, these things require a little bit more precise assessments. And this is the challenge here um, that, that physicians seeing so many patients, maybe even their qualification not necessarily being 100% the right one for these patients, uh, not only because maybe in, the, in, the, in a, a practitioner out there is not a specialist cardiologist or pulmonologist, but also think of emergency rooms where, where you have all sorts of people working in the emergency room and uh, you come with a cardiac problem, but the physician at hand is a dermatologist. Now, what do you do? There is no other physician. And, and so this is presenting a challenge to the medical system. Uh, and, and luckily, I think we got better in, in, in tackling this. And are there particular like biomarkers or physiology that people, you know, clinicians should be looking for with their patients? What type of tests and things should people be yes, trying to I mean, get done? This, this, is, this is now getting into the, 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 the way we are thinking about the, the diagnostic confirmation of somebody having heart failure. Uh, you, first of all, of course, there need to be a patient with a problem. And that is quality of life, you might say in general, but specifically symptoms that, that are pointing you in the direction that this could be heart failure, like shortness of breath and uh, severe limitations in exercise capacity. And then the second step is in today's world of our medicine, mostly a check of the nitritic peptides. So this is really in most cases, uh, check number one, of course, combined with other things if necessary. If you've never seen the kidney function of the patient, do the kidney function test, if you've never seen uh, the risk profile patient is obese and you don't know about lipids or CRP, well, do that check as well. But from a heart failure perspective, the key is that we have brain nitritic peptide, atrial nitritic peptide. We have very well-developed uh, and, and validated nitritic peptide tests available to us that on the one hand can confirm the absence of a cardiac abnormality, so a rule out cut points are established relatively low, but when you're below these values, you really don't have a hard problem. And then there is a gray area where you need to have further investigations, but then there's additional cutoffs for the rule in of heart failure where you can really be certain uh, with a very high probability that this patient now does have a cardiac problem. And once you have reached that level, uh, you can straight go for more detailed assessment and you will not waste uh, the resources of the system now initiating echocardiography and, and things, but nitrate peptides here are the key issue. They are they are not free of a little bit of complication. Not, they are not just just little tools that you can automatically and without thinking use. Uh, for instance, obese patients tend to have lower levels, so you need to adjust by body mass index somewhat. Uh, as just one example here. Of course, kidney function may interfere with the natural peptide levels. And so, so really, um, you need to have an understanding uh, of, of, of what you're doing. But then natural peptides can be extremely helpful in this setting. And I guess once you've made the diagnosis of heart failure, then you really want to subclassify it. So how important is ejection fraction in subclassifying your heart failure patients? Yeah. That's an interesting point. I mean, you repeatedly now have talks where almost, almost meant as a provocation, people say we should abandon ejection fraction. 
But most of these talks, or almost all of them, conclude in the end, well, as much as this may theoretically be a, a possibility because it's just a big group of heart failure patients, if we want to practice evidence-based medicine, we need to recognize that our clinical trials have used ejection fraction extensively on the one hand, uh, and that, that the evidence and the drugs that we have tested not necessarily work in the whole spectrum of ejection fraction patients. And so therefore our, our guidelines based on this evidence do make recommendations that quite rightly uh, are specifying different things for heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction, 40% and below, and for patients with preserved ejection fraction, 50% and above. Now, I specifically left out here for one second the 41 to 49% uh, patients that we are calling heart failure with mid-range or with mildly reduced ejection fraction. It appears more and more that these patients are behaving on average more like heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or in the old terminology, systolic heart failure uh, patients and a little bit less uh, like, like heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction. And therefore what we have learned um, working with big certainty in heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction, uh, like, like RASI inhibitors, beta blockers, aldosterone antagonists or MRAs, uh, and uh, now also, of course, SGLT2 inhibitors, the application of the knowledge gained for the, these patients with 40% and less can also be extended to the mid-range patient. But we need to understand that these patients already have a lower risk because ejection fraction and risk is associated. So we, we will not get the automatically same big return on investment, you might say, for, for all these patients. And we need to also accept that the, the certainty around the, the evidence, of course, for these patients then is a little bit less, but medicine is, a, is an art form also because you, you need to, in a clever way, extend the, the strict evidence to the, the patient in front of you. But then the separate notion is the heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction patient. They are really uh, quite a number of trials have failed in the past or didn't show convincing success. Therefore, there we have a little bit of a different picture. Uh, and, and, and that's why I think ejection fraction is here to stay. Uh, it is something to, to, to classify your patient by. And there's even new uses of ejection fraction, as we already hinted at very early on. When you, when you think about cardiotoxicity and cancer, a drop in 10%, so from going from, from 60 to 50, is already uh, impaired ejection fraction and, and may need some attention uh, by the physicians for this particular patient. And then we have these patients that had reduced ejection fraction heart failure, now have an improved ejection fraction. So what are we doing with them? So, so we need to really have ejection fraction still in our our thinking and our assessment process, we, I don't think in the foreseeable future we can abandon it at all. And I guess it's quite interesting there that you've mentioned the point about improvements in ejection fraction. And it's important for patients and clinicians to know that it's not a one-way street. It's not going to just progressively get worse and worse. You mentioned there are a new class of drugs that's looking quite promising. Yes. So tell me more about these clinical trials. Yes. I mean, the biggest progress uh, we have seen in cardiology, in heart failure specifically, but I have to say 
in cardiorenal metabolic disease at large is with SGLT2 inhibitors, where since the EMPOREC outcomes trial was published in 2015, first, of, first time ever showing that a drug can simply improve the prognosis of diabetic patients with cardiovascular risk factors, that now after yeah, seven years and uh, roughly speaking 10, 12 trials with SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure, reduced and preserved ejection fraction, uh, with CKD uh, kind of focused trials, with type two diabetes trials, we now know that SGLT2 inhibitors in the whole spectrum of cardiorenal metabolic disease patients prevent heart failure. But once you have heart failure using these drugs, you can still make things better for them in reduced ejection fraction, in mid-range and in preserved ejection fraction patients. You can uh, improve combined endpoints of hospitalization and death. So, so, so you get your cost benefit from having less hospitalizations. You get your quality of life and symptomatic improvements, but also you get a moderate degree of reduction in mortality. If you take the totality of evidence of these uh, kind of many trials together, probably in the range of 12, 15% uh, for cardiovascular mortality, which, which is as an incremental benefit is a very useful thing to have in addition. But really the specifically big breakthrough success was that this was also possible in patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure. This was not possible before. And, and so it's quite good news uh, uh, that this, first of all, was shown with empagliflozin and we published this last year and presented all of this, but is actually now also validated with dapagliflozin uh, in a few weeks at the European Society Cardiology Congress, we will see the delivered trial reporting. So, so we can be certain that SGLT2 inhibitors can, can do this also there. So you're quite confident, I suppose, as a physician and a clinician that, you know, your patients with preserved ejection fraction, that this really could be a game changer for them. Oh, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm very comfortable with this notion. I'm, I'm really positive about this. This is a game changer for, for sure. Perfect. Well, listen, thank you so much, Professor Anker, for this really informative chat about what heart failure is, the challenges around diagnosis, and I suppose the the promising potential that we're seeing from SGLT2 inhibitor drugs and, you know, how they could be a game changer for patients with preserved ejection fraction. It's been a really great talk, and I really hope it's giving the clinicians who are listening something to think about. If you wish to find out more about any of this, there will be links to some references in the show description. However, that's all we have time for in this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed this episode. In future episodes, we will explore treatment options for heart failure and explore some really exciting real-world case studies. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and goodbye for now. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and look forward to seeing you next time. Don't forget to stay up to date with all the latest discussions and to help spread awareness. Follow and subscribe. You can find us on your favourite podcast platform and rowin-cardiology.com.